All right, lights, camera, action. Hey. Welcome to Conversations with Charlie with our special guest today, Boaz Yaki. Nice uh, to see you. Uh, nice to see you, Boaz. Uh, uh, an I iconic uh, uh, veteran director uh, uh, and, and of my generation, not always the case. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. We go back. So, um, uh, uh, tell me a little bit about what you're up to right now. Let's get started with that. And, uh, and we'll get this first ever COVID-19 episode uh, of, of our uh, podcast in, in complete isolation in our homes. I'm here in Brooklyn and Park Slope. Where are you? I'm in the Hamptons where I splurged to get my 85-year-old parents out of the city before things went bananas. Um, so we got a place and we're here for a couple of months out of the way, chilling out, doing our self-imposed exile from the city thing. That's, that's wonderful. Best yeah, it, it, it is. It's cool. Yeah. Less, less density, just, uh, just, uh, 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 more space between people. Yeah. Yeah. We don't see anyone here. I just, uh, I shop once a week and, and that's it, which is actually only like 10% removed from what my everyday normal life is like. <laughs> um, I, I birds have, outside seagulls and yeah i have friends who are going crazy from the social isolation and i'm like i never see anyone anyway i'm just home all day and i you know go buy some food or get takeout and watch movies at night like i, I and maybe see a friend once a week so this is like 10 percent removed from my normal everyday life it's funny uh my girlfriend's a journalist and and mm -hmm. her life is very much the same She's, she says, the only thing I don't like is, is now when I want to go out, I'm, I can't go out and socialize if I want to socialize, right. but, her, but her day, but her day really hasn't changed in, in this scenario. You're a writer, you work at home, you write, uh, wherever you are, you're, you're running. Yeah. But it's, yeah, but it's crazy times and it is strange. I mean, we have social media so we can stay in touch with our friends, you know, and all that, but um yeah so that's what i'm doing um luckily actually you know we i had a movie that i had recently made called aviva wonderful let's was, talk about that it was supposed to premiere at south by southwest and like all the other films that from every other festival probably for the next half year it got canceled um but it looks like we're going to have some kind of virtual or whatever what do you call it not virtual but but um video uh, uh streaming distribution uh, starting in June. But it's a hybrid. It's a brand new. This is very important. This is a brand new model because there's there's subscription. There's VOD, iTunes, or, you know, uh, a pay-per-view, pay, pay, pay for screening, pay for rental. And then this is a new form of streaming through theatrical exhibitors. So you go to the theatrical exhibitors if you're buying a ticket to a movie in a movie theater. Right, exactly. And, and, exactly. And, and, it's, and, it, and you become a moviegoer through a movie theater chain to watch online. This is, this is all brand new. Yeah, I mean, in fact, it seems like in a way the theaters that are taking your movie, especially if it's an independent movie, are sort of functioning as curators for the movie. You know what I mean? And so for the first part of the run, it goes through the landmark theater. So it's as if, so if you're going to see the movie, if you want to see the movie, you have to buy a ticket through landmark um, as opposed to going into the 
actual movie theater, but you're still seeing it through the landmark uh, website. And, um, and then, you know, your film gets reviewed, hopefully, and, and, and people pay attention to it. And then it goes to like iTunes and all that. And, and then you look to sell it. It's, it's essentially the same thing as what happened with a film normally, except rather than an actual movie theater, the movie theater is functioning as a portal for you to be able to see it through streaming. Right, right, right. So, um, wonderful. So uh, uh, tell me a little bit about Aviva, the, the film itself. I don't know very much about it. Well, Aviva is a really, really unique um, and somewhat experimental movie for a narrative. Um, it's a dance movie and it features some of the most incredible contemporary dancers in the world right now. Um, Bobby Jean Smith, who came from uh, the Batsheva Dance Company in Israel, the, the great Batsheva Dance Company. Or Schreiber, Zina Zinchenko, Tyler Phillips, these incredible dancers. And um, but basically it's in one way, it's a, it's, a, it's a relationship movie about a man and a woman who meet long distance, fall in love and get married and their relationship struggles and they end up separating and end up as best friends. But what is unique about it is that it really deals with the masculine feminine imbalance in the self. And in order to portray that, I've cast a man and a woman in each of the two main roles. So four actors play two people. The woman is played by a man and a woman, and the man is played by a man and a woman. Oh and God. it's very theatrical concept. It's like sometimes the two women are interacting, sometimes the two men are interacting, sometimes all four of them are in scenes at the same time. Um, and it's like basically saying any relationship has more than two people in it. Um, and so it, you know, it, it's an interesting film in that it explores sexuality through dance and through these different characters and portrayals of two people. And it explores gender identity, which is a, a, a very a, a sort of a wide subject, of course. Yeah, I mean, and what I like about, I mean, what I think is interesting about it is that I, I think that the masculine feminine balance is something that we all deal with, whether we're in a, a straight relationship or a homosexual relationship, a lesbian relationship, all of us have a masculine and feminine balance that we're negotiating and dealing with in ourselves and with our partners, no matter what the genders are. So this movie is kind of tricky and, and funny in that, it, I mean, it has scenes between two men or two women, um, but they're portraying a man and a woman. So it's a heterosexual relationship, but you're having same-sex scenes and, and, and sex scenes in it. Um, you know, because sometimes a certain part of you is connecting with your partner and sometimes but a different part of you. Two people, two people playing one person on both sides. So there's a male and a female and a male and a female playing one individual. No, playing two individuals. Playing two individuals. Okay. Yeah. Playing two individuals, yeah. but I'm just—I I see that it's two individuals, but but it's but it's but it's two sides of one person. I guess is my point. One hundred percent. Right. So you have so you have. I mean, it, it just—it's you know mind-boggling to think about. But you have a woman and a man playing one individual, playing a man externally. Yeah. And a woman and a man playing a woman. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. So it's a trip. The movie is a trip. It's, it's romantic. It's a love story, but it's about struggle and about the difficulty of feeling like a whole person. And it's a great dance movie. So it's pretty exciting. 
Fantastic. Very exciting. So um, I don't, I want to go back in time. Your, your, your parents are both uh, uh, Israeli, but met in, in, in Paris uh, in, a, in a school for mime. Uh, give me a little history of the, the, the Boaz Yakin uh, uh, heritage, the family heritage. Wacky heritage? Well, Wacky heritage. Yeah, well, you're with them now out there. Yeah, I'm with them out here. My, they're both, um, my, my father comes from a Sephardic Jewish family. Um, it moved to Jerusalem in the early part of the 1900s. Um, and, you know, long before Israel became a state, and he was one of five brothers and a sister. Um, and he started out in the theater in Jerusalem way, way back in the day and ended up moving to Paris right after World War II to study mime because he was obsessed with studying pantomime. My mom, grew up in what was then the suburbs of Tel Aviv in a near a farm. Um, and her mother actually left Palestine uh, before World War, right, af right after World War II, just as it became Israel, and moved to Paris. And she ended up going to live with her mom in Paris and was sort of taking mime classes there too with a teacher, well, with Marceau Marceau actually. Um, and they met in Marceau's school and they fell in love. And um, my dad, read about the great acting teacher, Stella Adler, who was coming to Paris for, I don't know for what reason, and they really wanted to study with her. And they also wanted to leave Paris at the time because of some crazy complications in their personal life. Um, and when Stella Adler met my dad, she agreed to bring him over to the States. And my dad ended up teaching in New York and brought my mom over. And they opened a pantomime school and my father became a theater director. He directed a huge off-Broadway hit called uh, Jacques Brel is Alive and Well and Living in Paris. Your father directed that? Yeah, yeah. Oh my he God. He directed the well, original production. I, just, I, I only bring it up because this has a connection to my life. I, I was raised in Brussels, Belgium as a kid. And ah, <laughs> yes, the home, the home of Jacques Brel. Home of Jacques Brel, yeah. You were, were you were raised or you were born in Belgium? I was born in Manhattan. I was born in New York City in 1962. In 1972, I moved to Brussels at the age of just before my 10th birthday, and I lived there until I was 17. So I was oh, cool. raised in Belgium, yeah. So, and uh, Jacques Brel, of course, is the, the, the iconic singer of Belgium. Not everyone always knows, unless they know who he is, that he was from Belgium. He sings yeah, people think he's French. French. I think he's French, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but well, my, my, wow. yeah, my dad directed that, and then he became the main, uh, the head of the movement department, movement for actors at Juilliard. And he's teaching there till this day. He's the only teacher that was there the first year Juilliard started in like 1960, I don't remember what. And he's still there today. Um, he's taught there over 50 years. Wow. Uh, taught some of the greatest actors in the I world. We did, a doc we did a documentary about my dad that's also gonna find distribution called Creating a Character, which is a great documentary about my dad. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I grew up kind of in the theater, surrounded by it, yeah. kind of a family, family business, so to speak. Um, Completely. Yeah. That's so neat. And, uh, uh, and, and so cut forward, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're living in, in New, you're born in New York City. Uh, what, I, what, let's go, Nate, let's, what, what neighborhood were you, what did you grow Upper up West in? Upper West Side. Upper West. Upper West Side, 71st Street. My right. parents sent me, bizarrely, having uh, us being not remotely religious or orthodox, 
they sent me to the most orthodox Jewish school on the Upper West Side, Manhattan Day School. It was like a yeshiva. So I grew up with this kind of split, you know, schizophrenic existence where at home I was doing all the stuff that you were told you were going to hell for at school, you know. Um, it was weird. And I, I even went to one year of yeshiva high school, which was finally I had to get the heck out. And, and, um, and then I, I ended up going to Bronx High School of Science, which was worse than yeshiva. And, um, and then I, I, I proceeded from there. But I had a very Upper West Side childhood for sure. Got it. Got it. Interesting. Interesting. And your parents, uh, I mean, I, I, my, both my parents are, 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 are Jews. Uh, uh, they're, they're, they're both passed away. But my, my father was born, I'm first generation American. My father was born in Germany. And my mom's family came from Eastern Europe. And uh, there was an atmosphere in my family of growing up in a Jewish household, but we were not synagogue goers, not particularly religious and not right. observant per se. Did you grow up in, with a certain degree of being observant? Were holidays celebrated? Did you get far Not at home, but my school, not at home, but my school was ultra, ultra orthodox. So we would go to seders at friends, sometimes, you know. I had, like I said, a very schizo upbringing. You were very culturally Jewish, very exposed, but at home it was not uh, 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 some type of uh, Sabbath lifestyle. And, no, I mean, and, and, and I always felt guilty so about it. I always felt guilty about it. I mean, my mom would send me out to the market on, on Saturday to go buy us breakfast, like bacon or whatever, and I'd be ducking all my people that I knew who were going <laughs> to synagogue next door. You know what I mean? Because I didn't want them to see me. So it, it, it was a bit weird. Interesting, interesting, fascinating. And then, and then uh, uh, you went on to study, study film. So when, when does the, the writer in you start to bubble? Well, I mean, I, in order to keep me from going crazy, my dad actually suggested when I was in high school, he had me meet Stella Adler, who was still alive, the great, great Stella Adler. Um, and she allowed me to audit her script interpretation classes for two years when I was 16 and 17 years old in high school. And even though I was in a way too young to fully absorb everything she was saying, her breakdown of how to study a play, of how to put it in a historical, personal, emotional, social context, it, it was such an astonishing class. And it was for actors ostensibly, but I think in some ways it was more valuable for writers and directors. Um, I thought I wanted to be an actor and I auditioned for Juilliard where my dad taught and I wasn't accepted, um, which I'm always grateful for because the very next year I, I went to City College and started taking film courses. And I understood that I really wanted to be a filmmaker when I was in City College back in the 80s. Did, did you have a, a foundation of some visual arts, still photography, cinematography, and all of that happening? I was 17 years old, right. um, you know. You gave you. Uh, and um, I had more of a theatrical background, but I'd seen films my whole life. And, and also, I did draw. I drew, and I was a comic book fanatic, so the whole idea of storyboards and visual storytelling was very much in my mind. Um, and then I, I, I left City College and I went to NYU for a year. Um, I don't remember what year this is. I think it's like 1985. Um, and while I was at NYU, I had this film teacher. Uh, his name was Robert Nixon, if I remember correctly. Um, and he gave like this two-day 
seminar on how to get work in the movie business. And it was all about like knocking on the doors of production companies and working your way up from being an intern and I don't know what. And I got a panic attack. I was like, what the fuck is he talking about? And I literally pulled him to the side at the end of class. I was like, Mr. Nixon, I was like, how do you become a movie director? And I don't want to hear about all this, like working at the production company and stuff like that. What do you do to be a movie director? And he said, let me take you out to lunch, which I'm always grateful for. And he took me out to lunch and essentially told me, you know, there's a lot of different ways. A lot of people start out as becoming script writers and writing their own script. Some people become, I was like, thank you. Got it. Right. And I wrote a screenplay on my own time while I was a sophomore at NYU. And my, my dad knew this guy who, uh, had done some producing in Hollywood. He was the son of a very famous movie producer. His name was Danny Selznick. He was the son of the famous David O. Selznick who produced Gone with the Wind and all that kind of stuff. Um, and my dad showed my script, which was this like little action movie, actually based on the character of the Punisher, but I changed it so that it wouldn't be the Punisher. And you know, the 80s was like action movie heyday, right? For like kind of low budget action movies and all that. Anyway, uh, he showed it to an agent who wanted to represent it and optioned it to a producer, to this guy, Paul Monash, who had produced The Exorcist and Butch Cassidy and The Sundance Kid. And before I knew it, at 19, I, I moved out to L.A. to become a screenwriter. I never finished college. Wow. And this was the birth of what would become the Pun Punisher released in 1989 or? Well, it actually never got made, right? But I always liked that character. So that was always in the back of my head. Um, this one never got made. It had a different title and, and it never got made. And I ended up doing some screen. I wrote a script for Stallone that never got made. And for this one that never got made. And for that one, I was like making money, but I wasn't having anything produced. And then I knew this guy, um, Robert Kamen, who was the guy who wrote The Karate Kid. Uh, and sort of took me under his wing a little bit, although we had a lot of conflict later. Um, and he asked me if I had any ideas that I thought would be good for a movie. And I just basically said, Marvel Comics. And remember, this is back in the day when people were not doing comic book movies. And anything from a comic book was seen as ridiculous and not worthy of being made into a film, right? And I explained The Punisher to him and he hooked it up at New World Pictures, I think. And I wrote the script for it. I, I, it would know, have been under Roger Corman at the time. That was the uh, New World was Roger Corman. No, no, Roger Corman had nothing to do with it. Um, maybe no, it was not new. Maybe, no, no, it was new no, maybe it was new. Maybe it was another version. It, it had that like half sun with the red lines in it. I, I, I don't know. Not Roger Corman. Um, but um, uh, maybe it was New Line. I don't remember. Whoever made the movie. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, and, and so I wrote it and, and they took it. And of course, they changed the script a lot and I didn't really care for it. Um, but it did get made. That was my first produced movie. I was about 22. Unbelievable. And then after that, then uh, you wrote The Rookie? Yeah, my buddy Scott, Scott Spiegel and I, Scott, who had written um, the Evil Dead, the second Evil Dead film, Evil Dead 2, which is a classic till this day, one of the great comedy horror films of all time. Um, Scotty and I wrote this action film, and uh, Charlie Sheen decided he wanted to, to be in it. He took it to Clint Eastwood and and Clint directed it and starred in it, which was 
an incredible experience for me. Um, Outrageous, right? This is your second film that gets produced, right? Second. Yeah, although it was, you know, the sixth or seventh or eighth film I'd written. Written, of course. But, 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 um, but, I, but Clint Eastwood directing the, the film, hello. Oh, incredible. And, and the thing that was most, and that, that, that was the last film Clint made when he was on his cold streak, I hate to say. Clint was on a big cold streak in, in, the, in the early, eight, mid-80s, like, and then, like, literally after he made The Rookie, he got on his hot streak again. Like, ours was the last shitty Clint Eastwood movie. Um, yeah. Like, you know, like when, when he made like the rookie he was making like pink Cadillac and like dead, the Deadpool. And, you know, and as soon as he made the, the rookie, he made Bird and then he made Unforgiven. And then, and suddenly Clint real was class, like, real place with classic. Yeah. Bird. Amazing. Like film, Charlie but what, what was amazing about the rookie to, for me as a, as a filmmaker was that, um, it's interesting, I'd kind of had it with Hollywood and I actually left Hollywood for a year. I stuck around just long enough to watch Clint shoot the rookie. I wanted to become a, a novelist and I, I actually left LA for over a year. I, I lived in Paris for a year, um, and which is what all young aspiring novelists think they're supposed to do, right? Um, but uh, Clint allowed me to be on set the whole time he was shooting the rookie. So I was on set for like two, two and a half months and I just, studied everything he was doing and he's a he's a great director for somebody to study because he really makes it all up on the set like Clint doesn't do a lot of prep if at all you know he kind of shows up sees where everything is sometimes he hasn't even seen the location yet depends on the movie I'm sure but sometimes he hasn't even seen the location yet and he starts to stage the scene and work with the camera right there in front of you so so this is not storyboard at all Except for one or two action scenes where you need to do a stunt or something, you know, a car coming out of a window. But everything else is literally like, you just watch Clint walk onto the set and just look around like, yeah, okay. And call the DP over and say, well, what about if he comes in through there and we'll take him in like this? And for, for a student, it's amazing because when somebody's all storyboarded and prepared, it's the most boring thing in the world, right, to watch a movie get made because it's like someone building blocks. It's schematic. With Clint, you could see the thought process at work. So partway into the movie, I could have told you what Clint was gonna do with the camera with like a 30 to 40% accuracy rate. Like I started, I got into his head so much that like as soon as I saw him start to work, I could go, okay, this is how he's gonna do this, 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 and this. I was learning. And, and the other thing that I really learned that was amazing for, for, for Clint was um, just like, how professional his sets are and how calm and how lacking in drama and hysterics and histrionics. He hates that stuff. Um, and it's something that I really took to heart because um, I've seen sets that are histrionic and full of dramatics and, and, and character conflicts and all that. And there are always character conflicts on my films too, but handling them in a way that's just cool, calm and collected if you can uh, is something I really learned from Clint. So I'm, I'm always grateful for having had that experience. Wonderful. And then, and then this now leads to uh, uh, ultimately to your directorial debut with the film Fresh. Yeah, I mean, I had left, like I said, I, I had left LA. I, I went to Paris. No, there was like four years in between Rookie and Fresh. So there yeah, was time there. And yeah. so now you're in Paris. Tell me about what happens in Paris. Well, I just, I moved there for my, with my brother for a year. I was like, 
you know, I'd been reading Henry Miller. I was like, fuck this commercial bullshit that I've been doing. I mean, there's gotta be more to life than that. You know, I mean, I had succeeded very young to be a, a successful film writer or whatever, but I was writing Hollywood nonsense that I was not very excited about. Um, and my brother was amazing. I mean, he really pushed and provoked me. We had a lot of arguments and fights, but my brother was like, really, like, you can do better than this. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm making, you know, $100,000 and I'm 23 years old. You know what I mean? Like, and it, da, da, da. but my brother was really very persistent in reminding me that there was more. Um, and I was internally also really frustrated. And my friend Henry Miller was always there with me um, in my mind uh, and has been my whole life. And, and um, while I was living in Paris, my friend Lawrence, who had you know been my friend for years in LA, just another broke, scrambling, wannabe producer, um, like most of us, um, Scotty and myself had introduced him to Quentin Tarantino, um, who just kind of tangentially had met with us. And Quentin, Scotty especially, Scotty is the one who befriended Quentin while I, while I was away. I, I never really um, had that kind of a relationship, but Scotty became very friendly with him and introduced him to Lawrence. And Lawrence produced Reservoir Dogs with Quentin, and, and it, it got a lot of heat, and I was in Paris, and actually when I was back just for a month or three week visit, I, I, I met Lawrence and Lawrence was like, look, Bo, I'm doing this, I just finished this movie, it's getting a lot of heat, and I think I'm in a position that if you write something that we can make for a low enough budget, I can get it produced. So Lawrence kind of sucked me back in, like I was on my way out, and Lawrence sucked me back in. And I had this idea for a movie about a kid who played chess and dealt drugs and dog fighting and all this stuff. And I did about a half a year of research and, you know, and, and, and all that. I wrote it. And um, it was kind of interesting. When I, when I first pitched Fresh, people were like, no one will ever make a movie with an African-American kid as a lead. Just the most uncommercial thing you can do. And then while I was working on it, before I, I got a deal on it, um, Boys in the Hood came out and became this huge success. And then when we went out with Fresh, everyone was like, no, we already have our black movie. You know, like that's how LA is, right? Like one month they're telling you no one will do your movie. Then there's a hit movie. And then suddenly everyone's saying, oh no, we already got one of those of our own. So it, it was tricky, but Lawrence found a French company called Lumiere and they financed the movie. And, and that's how I ended up making it fresh. Wow, clever. And, and fucking and Lawrence dragged me back into the movie business. I'll never forgive him for it. There you go. And then, and then it was, and then it was. Uh, uh, I could have uh, had class. <laughs> I've been a writer. Instead of just a bum, which is what I am. Let's go, let's rewind back. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about this break because I didn't know much about it. You, I, I, obviously, there were these interactions that, that took you back uh, into the film business, but you were uh, uh, living in Paris and reimagining your life. I mean, other than what led up to Fresh, what else was going on at that time? Were you, what were you occupying? Because it was, you were there for several years, right? No, 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 for like a little over a year only. Only a little over a year. Okay, so it was like yeah, a, like a year and like three or four months. And and in fact, it, it was a break in the action. 
it was a break in the action. I have friends there. Um, I, I lived a very solitary life, which is my normal way of doing But I mean, I found a little apartment. I wrote in the mornings. I took huge walks in Paris, which is literally the greatest city in the world to walk in. I mean, yeah, yeah. I got to know Paris much better than I knew New York, and I grew up in New York. And Paris is the city that you can develop a relationship with without ever talking to anybody. Absolutely. Right? Like just develop a relationship with the neighborhoods and the streets and the way the shape of the buildings work. And love it. Yeah. Know, Baron von Hausmann who built it did, did a hell of a job. And um, yeah. And I, and it was sort of like realigning my mentality, what I wanted for my life and how I wanted to think about being creative. Um, and actually while I was in Paris was when the Gulf war broke out and the first Gulf War broke out. And I was, I was living in the Marais, which is the third district, which borders yep. on the 11th, which is heavily Arabic. And is also right- is where Georges Pompidou is, the, the Centre Pompidou. Yeah, right Near there. Near it, right? Yeah, right next yeah, to Yeah, right there. Yeah. And it's also next to Place de la Bastille, where there were a lot of protests. And I have to say, even as a, you know, a, a not, as a fairly liberal kind of a guy, um, the anti-Americanism and anti-Semitism that erupted in Paris during the first Gulf War, when George Bush, you know, had, uh, when, when Saddam invaded Kuwait and, and, and George Bush went to war with him, or we went to war with him, the amount of anti-Semitism and, and anti-American was so pointed that I started to feel very just uncomfortable living where I was living. So I came back to the States for like a month in the middle of that year. I mean, the Gulf War only lasted for like three weeks. I don't remember how short of it. It was pretty fast. Um, of course, it got us into a bunch of shit that's lasted till this day. But, but um, I, I went back to Paris after that. So, so there was this like month-long break where I was there for six months. And then I like left and came back to the States. And then I went back for another half year. Cool. Interesting. Interesting. So now Fresh gets made. And uh, and the next one on 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 uh, on deck was going to be a price above rubies, which came out a few years later, right? And you you had uh, you probably were doing some writing in between, I'm guessing, and other things. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, you know how I mean, I I've probably actually gotten to make two or three out of the like thirty scripts that I've written. You know what I mean? Like like I've written a lot of scripts that I really wanted to make, and those weren't the ones that I got to do. Um, I'm lucky enough to have been able to make a living in our field, you know, all this time, but certainly the films I was most interested in often didn't get, get made. So I, I wrote after fresh, I wrote this follow-up called flying about homeless kids living in New York. And I thought it was going to be a really special film and it never got made, but one of the characters in it sparked something in me and I developed it into the main character in price above rubies. And Lawrence got Miramax interested in that and, and um, our friend Harvey Weinstein and uh, he, he bought it. And, um, and we got Renee Zellweger who had just come off of Jerry Maguire to, uh, to, star, to star in it. And, and, I, and I got to make that film. That was my second movie. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, before we, we skip forward to all of the, 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 your film life, you took a, 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 a left turn at one point in your life to explore doing some graphic novels. Uh, well, I wouldn't see it as a, as a, Charlie, I wouldn't see it as a left turn because you have enough time to do more than one thing at times. You added to your life. You added something. Yeah, I added it. Um, 
my brother is a, a spectacularly talented graphic artist, my younger brother, Erez. Um, he doesn't do a lot of graphic. He, this is the only graphic novel he ever did. He has this incredible imagination and, and, and sense for architecture and, and, and fantasy. And he wanted to do something. So he had this sort of concept for a, a kind of Jules Vernish story called The Remarkable Worlds of Professor Phineas B. Fuddle. Um, and I wrote it. I, I, I wrote it so that he could just go crazy and illustrate the most outrageous architecture and fantasy and, and, and uh, cityscapes, alternative cityscapes and all that. And DC Comics published that. Um, but definitely for me, that was a side project. But my brother really got this sh to shine in his artwork in that. And then later in my life, um, a couple of, I'm really grateful to, to this guy, Mark Siegel, and my friend Jordan Mechner, actually, who, who introduced me to him. Um, this guy, Mark Siegel, who runs a company called First Second Books, read a couple of my unproduced screenplays and was excited about them. And we turned them into graphic novels. I adjusted them. And, and so those were two scripts that, that never got made. One of them, I'm really, I, love, I like them both, but one of them is kind of amazing. It's it, because of the artist. Um, but I wrote this epic history slightly fictionalized history of my family's experiences in Jerusalem in the 1940s. Um, and this guy, this amazing comic book artist called Nick Bertozzi, illustrated it. And it's just like 450 page graphic novel about Jerusalem in the 40s and the conflicts that went on there. And I'm super proud of that book. This is all before the state of Israel in 47. It's sort of right up until it became the state. It, it, Jerusalem, the, the, the graphic novel takes place between like 44 and 48. Yeah, so right and in. Sort of a fictionalized version of my dad's life and my family in Jerusalem when he was a kid. Wow. Based on a memoir that my dad wrote. And do you, do you have a family in Israel to this day? Yeah, or? all of my family other than my parents are in Israel. Oh, wow. Okay. In Jerusalem mostly. You know, my mom doesn't, my mom's, my mom's got a Polish background. And um, she, her parents were in Palestine in the 30s. All their family was killed in Poland. You know, the Nazis killed them all. I think just my grandfather had one brother that, that survived because he was living in the States. But I have no relatives, really, from my mother's side. They, they, wow. were, all, they were all wiped out. But my dad had a pretty sizable family in, in Israel. And we st I still have a lot of cousins and everything in, in Jerusalem and, and all over. And have you gone there over the years? to visit? Yes, frequently, yeah. although I have to say, um, I haven't been there in about nine years. I haven't seen everyone in about nine years, which is, wow. I mean, just shockingly long time. Um, right. but I, I used to go a lot more frequently. Wow. Cool. And then, and then uh, uh, in, in 99, you got the chance to make Dust Till Dawn. Um, no. Where you were a writer. You were no, no, no. They made Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez made. Oh, I'm just saying, but you were the right, you were the writer for that. No? Nothing to do with that film. You had nothing to do with it. No. Nothing to do with it. But when they were then going to make sequels, um, straight to video sequels, um, because my friend Scotty had known Quentin and all that, they were looking to see if Scotty would direct, like from Dust Till Dawn two. Right, Texas Blood. Whatever. Yeah, Texas Blood. Anyway, so Scotty and I spitballed a story for Texas Blood Money. Right, that's what I, that's um, what I was referring to, actually. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, the I first one was... 
I said it wrong. I mean, I knew Dustal Dawn was was Quentin's. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Quentin and Robert Rodriguez. Um, I'm talking about. In fact, I think that's one of Quentin's earliest scripts. But yeah, no, I I helped Scotty come up with a story for the second one. Right. I didn't write it. But I, I I came up with a story with him. Oh, okay. And then, and then it was after that that, that uh, uh, the big explosion with Remember the Titans, huge project for you in, in 2000. Yeah, I'm not, that might have been before, but, or similar time. But basically, you know, I had been having a hard time getting anything made after Price Above Rubies. Um, and Remember the Titans was not your script, right? That you were a director on that. That's right. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I did writing on I did writing on it, but it was a script that this guy uh, Gregory Allen Howard wrote, and, and, and it was produced by Jerry Bruckheimer, big big yeah, project, was, huge, was, yeah, huge produce Hollywood producer at the time, the biggest, yeah, um, and and you know it was an interesting experience because I, at that point, had no desire to make those kinds of movies or you know commercial Hollywood movies, but I needed a job, and um, I read the script. And they, they, they asked me to come in and meet on it. They were looking because, you know, it, it was in, it's interesting. You know, at the time, um, just yesterday, I gave an interview to a writer from CNN. They're do, I mean, CNN, ESPN. They're doing like a 20th anniversary story about the making of Remember the Titans. Like it's become kind of a classic, by a sports classic. But like at the time, people weren't making sports movies. Like there would be the occasional sports movie, like, I don't know, like All the Right Moves with Tom Cruise, you know, or whatever. I think but it was, it's not, I'm trying to remember when North Dallas 40 was made and some of those films, yeah. Yeah, before they had them, like The Longest Yard and, and Rocky, Yard. of course, was a huge one. But it wasn't like a genre, like every year you've got to have like two sports movies, you know what I mean? It was like people, it wasn't seen as like some commercial genre, right? And so Jerry Bruckheimer, who was like the biggest producer in LA, had this Titan script um, and Disney didn't want to make it and basically agreed as a favor to him to make it, but for like what was for him a very low budget. For, and it was for a movie of, of that scale, it was like 20 million bucks or whatever. And so all the usual suspects who, who Bruckheimer worked with wouldn't make a movie for that kind of a budget, you know, Tony Scott and, and all those guys. So they were looking for more independent filmmakers who might get jammed in there and, and pull off something for what was for them a low budget. And I had my real hesitations. I, I don't like football. Um, I, I do love basketball. I've been an NBA fanatic ever since I was a kid, you know, um, but bas football just never meant anything to me. And I certainly wasn't interested in sports films, um, but I felt like I had to do it and I auditioned for it. You know, I, I did an edit on the script and I told them how I would approach it. And, I got this job and hence a year of uh, two years of my life became Remember the Titans, which was super challenging, both emotionally, physically, and technically for someone who had only made a couple of $3 million movies. Um, and it was, it, it was challenging making a movie that was so different from anything I'm interested in and still trying to make it good. Um, yeah. And, 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 and was there at some point, even a, a certain amount of, of, of study that you had to do of, of just kind of digging into to, to, to really delve yourself more into the game of football in a more detailed way and all of that, or not really, are you? No, I mean, you, I was always like, look, yeah, story, what, what's the emotion behind it, right? Like, cause I'm like, okay, and they were like, you need to know more about football. And I'm like, look, I'm the director. 
they do two things in football. You hand the guy to someone and they hit him, and then you throw the ball to the guy and then they hit him, right? Like, <laughs> essentially, that's, that's what you do in football. And, you know, you have football experts working on the movie and designing the plays and all that. And it's my job to say what I want emotionally out of the game or whatever. But, um, you know, I never got into, into football, but, but the idea of dealing with race relations and, you know, young people coming of age in an environment that is so racist and so difficult and trying to navigate that and come out of it on the other end better, that was something I could connect with and that moved me. And that's what I focused on. In trying and, the Den- and the Denzel character is so captivating. Yeah, he's real captivating. I loved Will Patton's, I love Will Patton as well, you know. Um, so that was definitely something that, that lifted it up. Yeah, it was, it was uh, yeah, such a, uh, a, a heart, there's so much interesting harmony between the people and, and, and there's a, a, a very a beautiful uh, underpinning of the lighthearted aspect of the, the team and the players can be we had We had an incredible young cast and you know, it's sort of like just alchemy. Like I've never been able to repeat that. Like it just works out that way sometimes that you just get this group of people that just play off of each other so well. Um, and that was really one of those cases. And then in, 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 in 2003, a few years later, you did Up, Uptown Girls as a director. That was not one of your, your scripts either, was it? Well, no. I mean, there was like four. I was one of like three or four writers on it. I mean, it was an original script and then more drafts. But that was a weird period of my life, too. I mean, we, I, I've been really ambivalent about being in Hollywood my whole life. As you know, I left after I did The Rookie to live in Paris to try and become a writer. Um, after I made Remember the Titans, I actually went into a severe depression. I mean, possibly heavily because my fiance, who's one of my best friends in the world now, but at the time we separated. Um, and it wasn't, it, there was, I was a frustrated young man and, and, and um, it was very bothersome to me. Now I'm a little more mature and I wish I could talk to myself as a young man back then, but of course that's not how life works. And um I was very upset and, and hurt and angry that the thing I was getting to be most known for was the thing I was least interested in. Like I was resentful. I was resentful that Remember the Titans was doing so well and that that's why people wanted to talk to me. I should have just accepted it, embraced it, enjoyed it, and used it to my benefit. But I didn't. Right. Uh, it, was hard, it was hard to exploit its success towards furthering opportunities maybe that that would be where your passion was yeah well i you know i i got involved in like make you know maybe developing some really big commercial movies after titans and i bailed on all of them and i wrote a script called roland about an african-american in world war one who comes back to the south and gets mixed up in the negro vaudeville circuit it was like the best script i'd ever written and people thought it was great but people were just not making movies like you know, and that frustrated me. And um, yeah, when I made Uptown Girls, I was kind of just going, let me make a bunch of money and make this comedy and try and make it look pretty. And I, I don't mean that really dismissively. I always try and do a good job, you know, but yeah, make this thing look pretty. I got to work with the great Michael Bauhaus, the DP um, who has since passed. 
and, and, and get out of the movie business again. And I actually kind of did. I mean, I had this little horror company that I ran with a few friends um, that produced the Hostel films that came out of that. But I also took off for about a year. I was traveling around the world. I was doing um, other things and, uh, and smoking too many cigarettes and, and contemplating killing myself and all that kind of shit. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, and no. Uptown Girls really was like my last... I was like, that's going to be my, I'm going to try and make some last, this, my last movie. And then that's it. I'm not going to do this shit anymore. Um, and in fact, the next movie that I did was uh, a self-financed film. You know, I, I made with my life, my entire life savings um, called Death and Love, which I'm very proud of, but which very few people saw. And, and it's truly unpleasant. It's such an, a hurt, angry film, but I think it's interesting. Um, and, uh, I needed to do that before I was able to go on and make any other, any other films. And then a, a little bit later, uh, you were, did you, were you on, on the, the Dirty Dancing Havana Nights? What was your That was name? a writing job. It was a writing gig. So you didn't have yeah. to direct on that. And then on, on, and then there was a, a safe later on. Yeah, I, you know, that was after I'd made Death and Love and I was like, oh shit, I think I might have to make some money again. I just spent every cent. I had making this movie um, and uh, I was like, let me see if I can write one of them action things like I wrote in the nineties. And in like three weeks or four weeks, I wrote save. Wow. And I was like, three okay, weeks. <laughs> does anyone want to do this? And Jason Statham liked it. And my friend Lawrence liked it and we made it again. It's one of those weird things where it's like, it's not the kind of movie I'm real. But, you know, you go, hey, cool, I'm French Connection, like New York action. Action, thing. girl, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, so I, I was like, look, you know, and you learn every time you make a film, right? You know, you, you learn how to move the camera better. You learn how to do certain things better. So I try and look at it as a learning experience, even if it's not exactly what I'm uh, dying to do, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And uh, keeping one's hand in, you know. Well, I'm going back to great cinematographers. I think on, was it on Remember the Titans? You got to work with Philippe Rousselot, right? Yes. Who became, you know what? I have to, I haven't seen him in so long. Because I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite friendly with him over the years from having worked in post. I worked with him. The last time I worked with him was on a movie called The Brave One with Jodie Foster. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a while. That's like 15 years ago. Yeah. It's a little while back. That's 2006-ish. Nice man. Uh, but we, we got... And then I also worked with him briefly on the New York portion of Sherlock Holmes when I was still mm. working with the. the Philippe is just such a great person to work photographer. with. Yeah, amazing individual on set, right? Yeah. He used to, when he was doing Sherlock Holmes, I remember he kept a, a guitar available. And I don't remember what the, the genesis of his relationship with the instrument was, but someone was telling me that he just liked to take breaks to play. You know, when we were doing Titans, he was teaching himself the piano. Okay, so he, this is this is thematic. <laughs> okay. So I guess he moved into the guitar. He moved the into piano. the guitar. Yeah, by the, yeah, interesting. He's such a nice guy, and, and in fact, you know, on I have to say, like, on my first couple of films, I worked with an incredible DP, but who was very slow and and moved in a way that made things very difficult to do. And I thought that's the only way movies could be. And um, when I made Titans and Philippe came on, I had never worked with somebody who 
can make your life so much easier. Yes. And I literally wanted to kiss him every day. Like, you know, you would come up with something really difficult to shoot. Like, okay, we're going to start up here and come down here. And they come in and we turn around. And I was just like, oh, waiting for this, you know, okay, we'll be done tomorrow lighting. You know what I mean? And he would say, ah, yeah, that's going to be difficult. 40, 45 minutes. And I'd be like, I love you so much. Like, I mean, he really was the kind of guy who could make you able to do whatever you want on set. Um, I, I, I'll always be grateful uh, to Philippe for that. Yeah, and a very soulful, incredible talent. Uh, Good man. Uh, and uh, uh, in, in his own right, a tremendous body of work, not, not, not to exclude uh, uh, the work that he did on the, the, the Jean-Jacques Benex classic diva. Where, yeah, he shot oh. Diva. That, that was his, like, when he was a kid. Right. He yeah. did, and, he, you know, there's something about some of these, like, French, French dudes. And, like, Philippe would go anywhere and do anything. I won't. Like, if I'm, if I'm, like, looking at a script, if someone sends me a script and the first page says, you know, fade in on a snowy landscape, I'm literally, like, like, the thing can you're be not, You're not, like, not going to make The Revenant is what you're trying to tell me. Fuck that shit. I mean, I don't care if it's Dr. Zhivago or if it's like, I don't care if it could win every Academy Award in the world. I do not give a fuck. You know, a snowy landscape. Like, I'm not standing out there for a year of my life freezing my dick off. Like, no way. Anyway, but Philippe shot movies like The Emerald Forest in the Amazon. The bear, like with bear, like Philippe would go anywhere and do anything. Like just adventure after adventure after adventure. And he would tell you stories about some of these shoots and you were like, man, I just don't know how you do it. Right, right. And I don't know why you would do it, but he saw it as an adventure. Right, and for you, you, you your, your stories have been, you know, North American based. They're not all in New York City. You've shot all around, right? But, but, but not, not, not long adventures. Yeah. Every once in a while, I'm like, why? You know, when I'm in New York in the summer shooting buildings and hot, shitty weather and stuff, I'm like, why, why am none of my scripts about like a wet t-shirt contest in Hawaii? Like, what, why, why aren't any of my scripts about something <laughs> that I'd actually enjoy being a part of? Um, that <laughs> they, they never are, you know. And 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 when you uh, 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 wrote, you you went on to write Safe, and then you and then after that, there were a, a number of years, and then you and then you ended up well in that series of films. You also did Now You See Me, of course. That was like at the same time as Safe. Right. So they were like writing gigs that happened at that point. No, no. Well, well no. Safe, I, I came up with and wrote. Um, and, on my, and, and you directed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Now You See Me was a script. My friend Ed Reichord actually was his concept. Um, and he pitched it to me to co-write it with him. He was like, dude, you know, I've got this cool idea. Actually, he had come up with that idea a year before. But he, I, I, he had told me it was called Poof. And I was like, Poof. And yeah, it's about four magicians who rob a stage in Las Vegas, a, a bank in Paris from a stage in Las Vegas. And I was like, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Yeah. And, and, and a year later, Ed pitched it to me again. And I was like, Ed, and he said, look, I wrote the first 10 pages. Check them out. And I read Ed's first 15 pages, 10, 15 pages, and they were more or less the opening scene of the movie, which is, I think, the best thing about the whole series 
that I understood what he meant when I read his, his pages. And I was like, yes, I get what you're trying to do. This is a cool idea. Let's do it. Um, and we wrote it together and, and it got sold and of course rewritten and, and the movie's kind of foolish, but you do what you gotta do. You do what you gotta do. And, and, and throughout your, your journey, you've also made shorts and lesser known independents. There's one that I noticed in 2012 where, that you directed called Wake the Fuck Up. That's, that's, not, that's, that's something I'm very proud of. It's not a short. It's a political ad, not an ad because that makes it sound like it's uh, financed by the, but it, a, what do you call it? Like a political piece for the, the Obama election that Samuel Jackson stars in. Yeah, so um, propaganda perhaps or- Propaganda or piece. Um, uh, like, and, and, yeah. Yeah, and, and it, it's, uh, there's this guy, Adam Mansbach, who wrote a best-selling book called uh, Go the Fuck to Sleep. You heard of that? I don't know that, no. It, it's, it's, it's like a kid's, a kid's book. It's actually a, like a, a, it was a huge bestseller. It's like this book written in the style of like a parent reading, a, a, what do you call it? Like a, a, a nighttime story to kids? Bedtime story. A bedtime story to kids. And or it's a story, bedtime story, yeah. Right, so it's an illustrated book for, as if for kids, and it's like, it's in rhyme, and it's like basically a, a story for exhausted parents where like, you know, and, and it rhymes, and it's like, you know, you, you've been in the park and you've played all day, and now, you know, the time is deep. Please, I beg you, go the fuck to sleep. Like, <laughs> the, the, the whole thing is about a parent trying to get the kid to go the fuck to sleep. <laughs> so we had this idea, or, or they had this idea that, to do an ad basically telling people to wake the fuck up um, and not be lazy because, and not be complacent because there was a good chance Mitt Romney might win. It wasn't a given thing. Obama would win that second term. Uh, so we made this political ad with Sam, Sam Jackson played a kind of a foul mouthed cat in a hat who pops up in this family's life. Um, and so, yeah, I, I co-wrote and directed that with this guy, Katao Sakurai, who's super talented. Um, and uh, yeah, that was, that, that's what that was. How cool. Um, and then, you know, years later, um, I, I got a chance to participate a little bit in when I was uh, a GM over at Gigantic Studios mm -hmm. with, uh, with the, the delivery of your film, Boarding School. And I remember even meeting with you once when you were in development on it. What a, what a script that is, yeah. Incredible. You know, I, that was an interesting film. It's hard to find right now, unfortunately. I think it's stuck in some kind of legal limbo. It's very hard to see that movie. It was on iTunes, though, no? It was, uh, no, it was never on iTunes? It was, it was short, briefly, and now it's not because of some kind of problem that, 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 that I can't remember even the company that's distributing it is having with their new owners. It's nothing well, to do was, with the movie. Yeah, there was Global Road that became Open Road. There was E1 in Canada. E1, that's who I, I, so I don't know. So the movie is like- some of the delivery on it when I was at Gigantic. Yeah, the movie is, it was E1 that ended up putting it right. And they, I don't know what's happened, but, but boarding school was, I love boarding school. I mean, and that was sort Crazy of also- the story. I mean, that, yeah. That, about a kid who gets, basically haunted by his grandmother and ends up wearing her dress and goes to this insane boarding school where, where he has to defend these misfits that he's stuck with. And it's very influenced by like, and looked by like Mario Bava, you know, the great Italian horror director. And, and 
it's not really a horror film, but it is a horror film. And it's also a movie about gender and, and sexual identity. And, but isn't it also a story about, about children who are sent away from, I mean, which is what boarding school is, sent away from their homes to an environment where they're potentially in danger. Well, where they are in danger. Where, where they the are in danger. There, but but the whole, but when I think about boarding school, like I went to a little bit of private schools through my life, you know, but never went to a, a boarding school, although I certainly knew people that did. And I always felt like boarding school, hmm, uh, this is an opportunity <laughs> for families to not have their kids around, to kind of get them out of, out of sight, out of mind. And uh, so what, what I find fascinating about boarding school is you, you explore this idea that they do that, but then they're placing them into something where there's a risk that they're not coming home. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where, that's the, where that's the actual idea. Yeah, that's um, the actual idea that the parents are, are maybe <laughs> like, uh, 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 maybe, maybe we can have a little piece around here and, you know, we'll, we'll lose a few of these. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's also a Holocaust film and it, it's throwing a lot into the broth. Um, I think, it, I think it's yeah. tough making certain kinds of films in the United States, honestly. You know, I, I think that I think that here there is such a focus on understanding who it's for and what kind of film it is. And is it a horror movie? Isn't it like things need to be sort of neatly categorized? What kind of movie is it? And and the independent films that I make, I, I find that really boring and constricting. I mean, I think that there's a way to do it but I really push against it. So when I get to do my own films like Death and Love or Boarding School or Aviva, they are kind of batshit movies. Like they don't fit into a genre. I mean, I think they're quite special in their own ways, but they're hard to categorize and they can be kitschy, but I don't, I don't do it in a way that just announces that it's kitschy. I let it sort of creep up. And sometimes I think I, I, uh, you know, I've discussed this with Alma, with my, my ex-wife, who's always telling me people need to understand your intention better so that they can follow a film. And sometimes I don't like to create the intention too strongly from the head of a film and let it kind of uh, sneak up on you. But, but so I think that some of the films that I've made that are more independent, so to speak, can be a little bit discombobulating or, you know, maybe I'm just not doing a good job. I don't know. But um, I, I certainly try to keep them from feeling like they fit into any particular cat particular category very easily. Right, right, and I and I think it, what what's interesting is you you've taken the opportunity and 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 captured the opportunity to go uh, uh, to go into these journeys to do these projects and uh, and and uh, uh, and to be able to perpetuate that and do that is been a great skill to to be able to make that. yeah i mean look like like but i mean honestly i wish it was sustainable but it's kind of it's not not to complain but like okay like aviva which i just made also with my own money i was going to go into debt to make aviva right and 15 years after i made uptown girls it's like christmas a couple of years ago and i get this call that the vice president of mgm who i know from having made max wants to speak to me. And I'm like, oh shit, what did I do now? And they're like, no, it's not bad news. Apparent, apparently you deferred part of your salary when you made Uptown Girls. And I was like, I did, I didn't even remember. Um, and 
the number, the movie 15 years later finally hit that number that you get your deferment. And it was a lot of money, right? So 15 years later, I get this like gift from the heavens, this huge check for Uptown Girls. And I literally took the whole thing and put it and made a Viva with it, you know? And I, I had to spend a little of my own money as well. But like, to me, it's like, okay, great. Every once in a while, I make enough money from like a bunch of screenwriting jobs or an old directing job. A couple of times in my life, I've gotten to take that money and make my own movie with it. Literally twice with, with um, uh, A Death in Love and Aviva. I financed part of boarding school myself. Um, and it's frustrating that every time I want to do something that is personal and that has a kind of a unique feel to it, I end up having to pay for it myself. Um, but it's also to be expected because those things don't make money back really for people and right. people, and people don't want to lose their money. Now, now, although, although I, I don't know if you know my, my old producer buddy who was on one of my, uh, podcast episodes, do you know Michael Ryan? I don't. Okay. Mike Ryan made films like Junebug and Power oh, yeah. and, you Bainy know, yeah, you've seen some of his his portfolio of uh, massive independent films. He's got a very good international connection with funding and co-fis in Europe and all kinds of stuff. And he's even done some stuff in China. He's, he's been all around. But he, 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 at a festival, probably close to 10 years ago, we were sitting down. He's a fellow, I, I have a bad habit of smoking cigars, so he likes to sit with me and smoke cigars. And one night he sat down and he says, you know, Charlie, I found that the only way to really approach people of high net worth on some of the projects that I do is to get them excited about the story, get them behind the story, and then to let them know that they're making a cultural contribution that they're going to leave behind and they may not make money. And he says it transforms. He raised a ton of dough that way. That's pretty amazing. incredible, right? And if you think it's about skill. if you think about it, there are people who want to be in the movie business. There are people who are willing to roll the dice. There are people that if the sum is not too great and they're and what they have is quite great, they're willing to uh, actually go forward, not a la, you know, the story of the producers where the you know, in the story of the producers, of course, they want their financiers to lose. That's the goal. Right. But, but in some cases, people are willing to roll the dice and, and fall below break even. And there could be a benefit for them to do that. And, and when you think about, think about European cultural funding, right? Where, and Which we don't have anything remotely like that. You have nothing like that. You have, think about the United Kingdom, France, Germany. Uh, uh, there is a foundation of funding where the funding is, it's actually for the art. And it's like, you know what? Like, even I remember, I think it was Telefilm Canada. I can't remember who I, I over the years, you know, you meet so many of the representatives of this stuff. And they'll say to you, yeah, if the film makes money and we made a contribution under our fund, we, we recoup. But if it doesn't, that's okay too. 
we wanted to make, we wanted to tell these stories. This and is not the American way. It's not the American way. <laughs> so true, right? Yeah, so true. Well, I've often regretted that I wasn't a European filmmaker. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you've it's like been a, It's a curse. It's a curse to have this mentality and, and be here. But I'm an American. What can you do? Yeah, but it's, a, it's also, but you've also been able to do a lot of stuff. It looks like you... What, what are the films outlaws and the harder they fall? How are they? Uh, are they? Those are, just screen, those are screenplays. Those are screenplays. And so you continue to grind and write, write. Yeah. Write, yeah. Write, always. Cause that's how I, that's how you keep the roof over your head. Right. So that's um, the, the that's harder they the fall is actually a script that a friend of mine was developing for years. And I, I helped him with the script and they were, it's his dream movie. And he was, it's, it's a, a $60 million, well, I shouldn't be saying the budget, but it's a big right. ass Netflix produced all African-American Western or all black Western, because some of them are British, I guess, like Idris Elba was supposed to be in it. Um, and they were literally about to go, after eight years of him pushing that project up the hill, um, they were supposed to start production the day Netflix closed down every movie because of coronavirus. Yeah. So it was like they had gone through pre-production, rehearsals, they built this Western town, they had the cast there, you know, and the day before they were supposed to start shooting, they shut the movie down. And now who knows? I mean, hopefully they'll shoot it when people are willing to go back to work, but that was a project that I worked on as a writer, but it wasn't something I was ever going to direct. Right, I mean, you know, when you think about uh, uh, the world we're in now, we're, we're in a pause which is scary, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but things will come back. Uh, uh, there is stuff in the pipeline that's getting finished that was already shot, knock on wood. Um, but uh, we're, uh, we're in a strange moment and, and, and you're, of course, going back to Aviva again to talk a little bit about that and about the theatrical changes. And as I mean, you know, it, it's no mystery to the world, although probably not many people have their eye on it at the moment, that companies like Regal, AMC, some of the big chains, we may lose one of them. I don't know which one. I don't have all of the financial reports, but when you take a walk, as I like to do through downtown and, and, and pass by the remaining commercial the commercial theater cluster around union square and you see it all boarded up and you're like how long can this work yeah and uh that's I mean, that's a rough i thing. guess another question is even when things officially are allowed to open up how soon are people really going to want to risk themselves to go to sit in a movie theater when they could watch a movie at home that's right i'm not, I'm not going into no movie theater anytime soon there we go We'll all be in like this. I don't know. I'd rather be at home watching it on my TV. Like, I, I, I don't want to be one of those anti-movie theater people. But I used to hate, I, I hated going to movies in the winter with, with the flu. I hate people sneezing next to me. Right, like, right, right, I, right. You didn't, you didn't like to be in, in, in an environment like a cinema. I, I, I go to movies twice a year now anyway. Like, you know, and, and, and so as a filmmaker of course i mean not having had our premiere at the paramount theater at south by southwest where like 1200 people 
could have sat there and watched. And it's, a, it's a communal big screen experience. With, and it's your little independent and, movie that once in, in your life is going to get to show on a big I mean, there's definitely a part of me that's always going to mourn that. Of course, the world's got bigger problems, but I'm saying, like, for me personally, that's going to be a loss. But ultimately, 99.999% of the people who are going to watch a movie like this are going to see it on streaming. Yeah. You know, so, but yeah, but what's going to happen with theaters? What's going to happen with all that stuff? It's, it's really going to be interesting to see in a year from now where everything's at. Well, you talked, I mean, I, I mean, I, as a kid, I spent a lot of time in France and in Paris and, and, and you talked about walking around the city. Um, one of the great things that the city of Paris continues to support that is hard to find in pretty much every urban center in the U.S. is it has one of the largest clusters of independently owned theaters. Absolutely. And they're showing all kinds of movies that you in all these places that are like little little theater theater venues that are that are not part of a chain, and some of them have calendar programs, uh, and uh, some of them are 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 for uh, current releases. Some of them are combinations, but it's 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 for the love of cinema, mm -hmm. and 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 uh, you know I started my career in in nineteen. Uh, 84 graduating college and uh, uh, having studied film and, and I and I worked as a movie theater projectionist in an old vaudeville theater in Davis Square in Somerville Massachusetts and uh, I used to have to walk up a, a ladder with two metal ICC cases to load them into the booth and show 20-minute reels with carbon arc projectors you know a little bit of the romance of of, of cinema paradiso but I got to tell you there's something to the cinema, you know, we, we, oh, we, we, we know, but like you say, in, in, in our world now with the pandemic, uh, uh, an already injured form uh, of, of, of that we love has now taken it, taken a punch to the face again. Yeah. A really big one. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, uh, we're, 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 we're heading in the direction of, uh, of, of, of the home delivery, which we have anyway. And yeah. uh, now with a new way to do it, like is happening with Aviva, which I find absolutely fascinating with this ticket thing that they're doing. And uh, amazing. Well, and I, you know, I just, I wanna, I, of course I'll always rue the actual movie theater experience, but uh, that it's not there, but you know, you, you try and be optimistic and, and do your best with what's happening. That's all you can do, you know? and, and I, Hopefully it's a, hopefully it'll be good. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the reason why I bring it up, of course, is I'm, I'm sure it's not foreign to you about what has taken place uh, progressively each, each year at the Cannes Film Festival. But one of the things that took place at the last one was that Netflix was not considered to be a producer of movies, of cinema. Well, you know, look, and, and as, so it became a little bit of a battle because they're like, and the reason that they got into the battle had nothing to do with streaming. That's the funny part. The funny part had to do with the idea that if Netflix were willing to do an old-fashioned 90-day, they weren't asking for the world, 90-day, which is a little more than anyone wants. Window, yeah. 90-day window. But even, you know what? Theaters be okay with 60 days. They wouldn't, they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't shut their doors. But if you tell them they get no days of exclusivity, 
adios muchachos. They don't want to be in that business. Well, look, and, I, and there I is get it. I, between the two. When I, I'm, most of my movies, right, up until recently, they were shot on film. I'm still from that, right? Of course, you're a film, you're, you are a filmmaker who actually worked, came from the era, as, as did I, of shooting 35, 16, and, shooting film. And they even edited the first film I did on a Steenbeck, not even on a Avid, you know what I mean? But, but, and there was a lot to learn from that, from the Steenbeck experience, but once yeah. I got on Avid, I wouldn't go back. Of course. And I was dragged kicking and screaming into the digital age of digital photography. Like, I, I hate... I hated the way digital photography looks. Right. I still, I still don't like it all that much, honestly. Um, it's not a tenth of what film is, right? Right. But, so I, I like I said, I was dragged kicking and screaming into it. But then I made boarding school and I was able to make it for, with a crew of 20 people and a light, and it, cost. a fraction of the cost. And it's not, it's not just because film is expensive and video is, it's because you don't have to light as much. When you don't have to light as much, you don't need as big of a crew. When you don't need as big of a crew, you can work in a smaller location. You're you with have... stock and not, you're working with drives and not film stock. There's no processing, the whole thing. But it's not just that. It, it's literally the domino effect of how mobile and small you can be when you're working with digital equipment. It's, it, it's a big domino effect. So like a movie like Aviva, which I just made. I'm not even going to say how much it was. But it was a tiny budget. And we shot 46 days, cast of 100 people, New York. Right, right, right there, freeze frame, 46 days. When was the last time an independent film shot 46 days? Continue. And it made for well under a million dollars. Like, well under. Um, 46 days, 100 people, New York, Paris, LA locations special effects, everything, okay? If that movie was shot even on Super 16, it would have been about a $4 million film or maybe even more. Like the domino effect of what would have happened in terms of having to get more crew, more like bigger locations, pay different prices. So I've embraced digital now for independent filmmakers. I think it's a, a gift from the heavens. Like. As, as beautiful and as sad as it is to see film go, fuck film, you can now do anything you want for a fraction of the cost and it democratizes movies for filmmakers who would have never gotten to tell the kind of stories that they can tell. So it's the same thing with streaming and Netflix. It's like there's always that first reluctance to go into whatever the new situation is. And then there's making the best of it and, and you know, I feel the same way with streaming and stuff. It's like, got to make the best of it. Yeah, and you have a creative opportunity. I, 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 I feel you always do have a creative opportunity. Showing in a movie theater does not eliminate a creative opportunity. It's mm -hmm. just a different viewing experience. That's what it is. So, so, and it's a different, it's a different uh, communal experience. But that, but it, you're still telling stories. You're still making beautiful images, and the work that you did. I mean, I, I, I got to tell you, I, because I, I spent a lot of time uh, reviewing and going through the the last heirs uh, of delivering on boarding school. That's a beautiful film, and it was yeah. a low budget film. Yeah. Well done, right? Because that's, that's yeah. Mike Simpson shot it beautifully. But yeah. yeah, you can do all that stuff. And look, 
for people like Christopher Nolan and Quentin who, you know, make hundred million dollar films with huge stars, they can say we want film to live. And I understand their point of view and I get it, you know, but then there's the rest of us who are not getting hundred million dollars and making films with the biggest stars in the world. And we have to find a way to tell our stories and digital has actually been a blessing. Yes. Oh, absolutely. No, no, no. It continues to be. And you know, the, the one thing that I like that I, I, I did, I mean, on John Turturro's film, Fading Gigolo, it was all shot on film. But one of the things that he did that I thought was clever, had it been shot digitally, was he had the opening of the opening sequence and the title sequence was all shot on Super 8, which I thought was very clever. And it's actually mm -hmm. quite inexpensive. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know what? There are a lot of tools in the toolbox and there are a lot of ways to be creative. And it, it's, it's, uh, 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 we don't live in a world where where you're prevented from from capturing content without shooting film. We don't need film, yeah. and and it's uh, and and your work uh, has been able to uh, uh, really extract the beauty through lighting and 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 what you've done in post to make the the best of of what you've captured. So it's it's not about one thing. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, well, this has been absolutely a wonderful first COVID-19 in uh, social isolation. I wish it was under happier circumstances, but I'll take I know, it. I know, I know, but uh, uh, so wonderful. And thank you so much, Boaz. This has thank been you. great. And uh, 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 we mark history today in conversations with Charlie and in what we have to do to continue doing what we do in this world. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me on your uh, on your podcast, man. I appreciate thank you so much. Thank you so much. Good to talk All right. to you, Charlie. All right. Thank you. And uh, 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 continue on. Be well. Thank you. We'll be in touch. Thank you. Okay. Bye.